one of the most important lessons I've ever internalized is that the way to deal with the pain is actually to focus on other people. And that's the compassion. You know, I'm with you. I always think of, in terms of death, um, I always think of that Dylan Thomas poem, Rage, Rage Against the Dying of the Light. Do not go gentle into that good night. And I'm with you about pushing back against the dying of the light. You know, I don't want to rage, but I don't want to go gentle into that good night. They're going to have to grab it from me and take it from my hands, this life. Welcome to the Reboot Podcast. We are so glad you're here. Sometimes, in the quiet of the morning, long before my house is filled with happy screams and the stomping feet of my daughters, long before the frantic scramble to get ready for the day takes over, I can feel it. The passing of time, the movement of my life. It makes me think of my family, my colleagues, my friends, my kids. It makes me think of my mother. One of my most prized possessions is a letter my mom wrote before she died. It's actually a letter she wrote as an adult to her mother, who had died when my mom was just 19. In the letter, I can feel the complicated feelings that my mom still held at the time. I can hear the gratitude and joy for the life they lived together. I can feel the grief she feels for the moments not lived and people not met. She speaks of the pain of her mom never knowing her as an adult, for the missed moments to be in relationship as adults. And she speaks to the sadness of her mom never knowing me my sister, her grandkids. I love this glimpse into my mom's mind and heart. Though perhaps what is most moving for me is that the words could have been mine, and I can connect to her in that. It's not fair my mom died young, and it's not fair my daughters will never know the wonderful woman that was my mother. But in those moments of grief, I reconnect with the gifts that she gave me, including the pain of her loss. For the pain changed my life. It simplified, clarified, amplified what's most important. The pain created new paths for me to connect with people around me, including my mom. And it showed me a new way of living, one that led me to the life that I'm living today and the man I am today. Pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional, as the old Buddhist saying goes. In those moments of morning quiet where I feel the passing of time, I often think of the moments missed by my mom. And how some of the most important people in my life never knew her, and she never knew them. And I feel the grief for the love she would have had for my curls. Man, she would have loved them. And I grieve for her not knowing me as a man, as an adult. But there is something magical in those moments of grief. Something magical in the pain of the loss. And I'm able to just put down the suffering. And then the pain deepens, amplifies the richness that is my life. Gino Zahn is an incredible human being that I feel privileged to know. I first met Gino on a shuttle speeding through the gorgeous Tuscan countryside on a way to the Reboot Italy boot camp in 2016. And from the very first interaction, I could sense his goodness. I'll never forget him sharing something deep, something heavy, something painful in nearly one of the first exercises of boot camp just a few days later. Since that moment, 
as I follow Gino's story, I have been consistently inspired and impressed by him. So I'm thrilled to welcome him to our podcast. In this conversation, Jerry and Gino talk about his journey as an entrepreneur, his battle with Fabry disease, a rare genetic disorder, and how the pain of the experience has amplified his satisfaction he gets from helping others and how it ultimately helps him get the most of every single day. April is Fabry Disease Awareness Month. If you'd like to learn more about this disease or donate to provide meaningful support to families and people affected, please go to fabrydisease.org. Working in VC is hard at any time, but doing this job over the last year has brought with it unique challenges. 2020 changed the world, and that change brings an opportunity for us to grow as humans, specifically as investors. The last year has shown us that perhaps the most important skills we can develop are our resilience and our adaptability. So whatever your experience has been over the last year and whether you find yourself feeling challenged or energized in this moment, we hope you'll join us and other folks in the VC community this June 4th for a reflective half day event featuring guided journaling, peer coaching, and a robust opportunity to not only refresh and refine your approach to the work, but to enhance your resilience and your adaptability. To learn more, apply, or submit for a scholarship, head to reboot.io slash minicamp. That's reboot.io slash minicamp. Hey, Gino, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Jerry? I'm good. I'm good. Well, let's start off with just, let's take a minute and just identify yourself. Who are you? That's a good question, and I think it's something that I'm trying to figure out. 25 years, I was in tech, uh, first as a, a product designer and a UX guy, and then as a founder and CEO of two companies. One was a user experience consulting firm, and the other was a company called Cozy. And that's where we met. That's that's the, the context in which we met. Yeah. Uh, it was about five years ago at a CEO boot camp. Mm. And it's good to have you on the show. And I'll say at the outset, you're a recent neighbor. You and your better half wife, Starler, have moved uh, from Washington to Colorado. And occasionally we run into each other on some trails, uh, biking. And uh, you've given me the gift of rediscovering the joy of riding a bike. And so I want to thank you for that. That's great to hear. And, and because... Yeah. You know, as you know, I've had some health issues, uh, and being here and being back and post cozy has also been the opportunity for me to rediscover the joy of riding because yeah. the health stuff, which we'll probably touch on at some point, uh, was preventing me from doing that. Yeah, and it's something that I love. So, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I, I think in some ways. Uh, there's a sort of shared experience there, but let, but let's go back in time. Let's time travel a little bit. And I remember, so you came to the very the second boot camp in Italy that Reboot ever did, and I remember it was a small Italian villa. It's kind of gorgeous, and I remember that experience. And you were. If I remember correctly, Cozy was about to do a fundraising um, and uh, 
how many employees did you have at that time? We were probably about 20 folks at mm-hmm. that time. And, and Cozy, correct me if I've got this wrong, Cozy made makes uh, managing rental apartments easier for both the landlord and the tenant. Do I have that right? That's right. And it's for independent landlords. So, you know, somebody who typically has a day job and they also own a few passive income properties. So they're not doing this professionally, uh, but it's something that can take up uh, an inordinate amount of time if, if uh, they're doing it the old school way. Yeah. And I think if I remember correctly, you, the design firm that you mentioned, you were in Colorado and then you moved to San Francisco. So, yeah, so the history there, uh, Seabright was the name of the design firm. That was founded in San Francisco. Uh, I was in San Francisco for almost 20 years. Uh, started Seabright there. And uh, the, the idea with Seabright was actually to build our own capital engine so that we never had to deal with VCs and we could build <laughs> our own products. And we, we learned that that didn't uh, that was, that was harder to do than it than it seemed. Mm-hmm. Um, but Cozy did uh, start as a product out of Seabright and ended up consuming the company. I see. And then you did raise venture capital at some point. Yes, I swallowed my pride and, <laughs> and, and uh, raised raised money. And right. uh, to your point on the the Italy uh, time frame, uh, a lot was going on then. Uh, yeah, I was eyeball deep in a fundraise. Uh, I was in an M&A process and uh, I still came to to see you on the other side of the world. Let, let's go back and um, t- tell me about the first night, because if I remember correctly, I think I said something to you, to you about a story and, and that first night and something happened. Am I remembering correctly? Something about who would you be without your story? Uh, actually, you know, it's I'm sitting here with this book in front of me of notes mm-hmm. from that time period. Mm-hmm. And this is what you said. And this is the first page of the book that says, who are you without the pain? Who are you without the pain? Still don't know the answer to the question, but uh, that's the first page of the book. And what did that question do to you? It made me pause during a time uh, when, you know, as any founder knows, it's hard to pause for, for much mm-hmm. uh, and and be introspective. Because uh, I was in on top of building a company and you know, building a culture and a team. Uh, I was also dealing with a bunch of personal health issues that at that point in time were completely secret to uh, everyone except for my wife and a you know handful of close friends. And my recollection is hearing that question and going, huh. And then I, I don't remember exactly what we did that first night, but it felt very woo-woo. Right. Um, I, I, like, I remember being introspective and also like, what kind of hippie bullshit have I gotten myself <laughs> trapped into in a place where I don't have transportation or any way to communicate with the outside world. Uh, so that, that was, that was night one. I'm laughing because a lot of people experience that first, uh, first night or first connection as uh, what kind of hippie bullshit, what kind of hippie woo woo bullshit. 
have I encountered <laughs> one as soon as they meet me, as soon as they meet Jerry. Um, and then the next day, we sent you on a partner Ooh. walk. Ooh. Yeah. What, what yeah. happened? So that was probably one of the, the heaviest non-medical related uh, things that I've ever had to deal with. That we're at this villa in Italy, and it's it's a beautiful place on earth. And we were assigned partners, I think. I think we were assigned yeah. partners. Somebody that you'd never met, right? So everybody there is a founder and a CEO of the company. And uh, I partner up with this uh, woman who is a, uh, we still keep in touch actually mm -hmm. um, because of Reboot. And we go out and we are walking around on the, the property. And the task that you had assigned us was uh, basically a listening exercise. And I think we had like 30 minutes each to just sit and listen to someone talk about did, was there was there structure around it or were they just there was and the, first of all the instruction for the listener was to listen um and to ask only clarifying questions like i'm sorry i didn't hear that but to really drop any notion of having to fix the person or having to respond or even compare and relate my own experiences but to really just stay with present with the person and the other goal was to have uh, the person who's speaking experience what it's like to actually be deeply listened to. And, and when we do that exercise, we typically somewhat randomly pull a question. And in this case, I think the question we gave you was, what would I like the people that I work with to know about me that they don't know? <laughs> That's right. That's right. Could there have been a harder question <laughs> for what I was dealing with there? So I have a rare genetic disorder that's uh, called Fabry disease. And essentially my body lacks a single enzyme uh, that breaks down lipids, which are microscopic fats. And over the course of you know 40 or 50 years, um, I'll be 47 in a couple months. Uh, and this was five years ago. So, uh, you know, fifth decade you start to see a lot of health problems, usually starting with kidney disease and, and heart problems. And at that point, I knew that I had kidney disease. My kidney function was something like 20% at that point. Mm -hmm. And I knew that I was going to have to try to find a kidney donor uh, and I was going to have to get a kidney transplant. So there had been tons of hospital visits and testing and all of these workups to see if I was even eligible and healthy enough to get a kidney transplant. And so I was carrying all of that in secret on top of building Cozy. And trying and, to fundraise. And fundraise and deal with a, a string of M&A things. I was actually, I had to take some M&A calls while we were in Italy. And so that that's the context of this question. Mm -hmm. What would you like people to know? And so I, went uh, down the hill and I sat on these, this rock with um, the woman that, that I mentioned before. And I told her everything. Um, and <laughs> we both sat there and, and cried, uh, you know, as I was telling her all of these details, which 
you know, to that point, only my wife and closest friends knew. And then I listened to her for a half hour and we both thought, oh, well, that was nice. That was, mm-hmm. that was cathartic. And mm-hmm. gosh, what am I going to do with that when I get home? So then we go back into the, the villa and regroup and, you know, thinking, all right, what's the next exercise going to be? Uh, little did we know, you then said, okay, the next thing we're going to do is the listeners are going to tell the group what they heard. Mm. And when I heard that, my uh, pick an organ in the body drops to the floor, mm. uh, thinking there's a group of you know, 10 people here or whatever it was uh, that are going to hear my story. And it's not even going to be me that is telling it. Mm-hmm. And so then I think she actually went first mm-hmm. and told the group what I had just told her about my health and fundraising and M&A uh, and, and all of it. And so the first time in my life that I had ever told anyone else that I was carrying this genetic condition that was trying to kill me way too soon, it wasn't even me saying the words. <laughs> and when I started listening to her say these things that I had been carrying around, uh, it was surreal. It was almost like an out-of-body experience. At least that's what I would assume or, or imagine an out-of-body experience to be, is uh, someone else telling a group of strangers your deepest secrets. And that was the first morning of reboot and I was bawling and, you know, a quarter of the other people in the room were crying and, uh, and then I was still trapped with no way to get, to get, get off, get out of that villa or, uh, or communicate with anyone else. So mm-hmm. and that, that was a, a pretty heavy start to uh, what ended up being a really good few days there, but yeah. And so I'm sorry that it was a surprise to you. Listening to your story, we should have told you that the story was going to be shared. Yeah, but think about how much better the story to tell now is. (laughs) (laughs) But but I'm not that sorry because you're alive. And you got a kidney. Yeah. And the story in and of itself. (laughs) You know, in my heart watching you weep in that moment. I think back to the question that you were carrying from the night before, and I think about the pain of keeping that secret. And, you know, rather than me projecting a story as to why it was a secret, I'm curious as to why was it that you chose at the time not to share that with, say, colleagues at work or even your existing investors as a, as a CEO and I just generally as a person I try to be vulnerable but uh, to that point I did not think that it was relevant to uh, the things that were going on at the company and I felt like when the time was right I would be fine telling everyone. Mm -hmm. Um, but to that point, 
to that point in time, uh, I hadn't felt like there was a real reason to, to to bring it up with the the larger group, and it's you know it's that simple. Mm-hmm. The story I told myself was, and I could be wrong here, but uh, that the burden of fundraising, the burden of handling the M&A inquiries and conversations, and the burden of just simply being the CEO was heavy. Sure. It was hard <laughs> to turn around to them and say, you know, by the way, I'm, I'm dealing with this, right? And I, I need a functioning kidney, and I need that soon. Does that resonate with you? The, I think there were two things. I mean, when I think about it, being a founder and a CEO, is absolutely a burden. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, I imagine a lot of the people listening to this know exactly what that feels like. Um, this was, it was almost a separate thing. When I think about the question, who are you without the pain, the, the carrying the secret was actually never, it never felt like the pain to me. Um, the way that I internalize, you know, the pain is dealing with the fact that I know, uh, that I will die sooner than most people, right? Average age for uh, men that have what I have is 58. And um, that that was the pain for me. And so carrying that, that secret was, uh, you know, I'm sure there was some amount of burden there, but it was never something that, um, that I kept on, on the same kind of weight scale as mm-hmm. all the CEO duties. Uh, it, it was just a fundamentally different thing to to deal with and internalize. And you know, when you when you're running a company, uh, you have tons of information coming at you, and a big part of the job is knowing when to communicate what and how to communicate it. And this was just kind of one of those messages in my head. So it wasn't it wasn't so much carrying the secret of this health thing as it was, am I spending the time that I have in a way that <laughs> when I am uh, lying on my deathbed, uh, while well, I look back and think that I did it the right way, and you know, there's a there's a backstory to why I started Cozy that heavily influences how I thought about this. And the shortest version is is that when I was running Seabright, my dad, uh, four months after he retired, was diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer. Uh, I watched my dad go from this strapping driven uh, bull of a, of a man to a withering skeleton because pancreatic cancer is horrific in a matter of 18 months. And he had all of these dreams to travel and do all of these things that he couldn't do because my parents had four kids and uh, everything that comes with that. And he didn't get to do it. And I, I watched that happen and I thought, I'm, I can't do this consulting thing. Like, I'm going to swing for the fences. I'm going to make a bunch of money. And I'm going to get out and do what I want to do as quickly as I can. And 
that's what I did. And then over the course of that period, I learned that I had kidney disease and all of these other things. And then my main driver for everything was making sure that I got to the end of that goal of being able to financially uh, have a, a secure future for, for Starla. And so going back to what I was saying, but with that being the driver, I knew that everything that I was doing was the right thing, assuming that it worked out. <laughs> That's the backstory of, you know, where my head was at at that point in time. You know, I, I don't think I remembered that your dad passed that way, but the immediacy and that image of your dad um, is, is really quite moving. And, and as I remember, um, your dad was a, was a, was a triathlete or? Well, my, my dad was, a, I mean, he had a government job, <laughs> so, uh, but he was also, yeah, he was super fit, ran, ran marathons a lot. He did uh, quite a bit of outdoor stuff, which is why I have the, the same affliction. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember seeing a picture of him. He had, if I remember correctly, the great uh, uh, 1970s style socks on that went up to like his knees. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The socks were too long and the shorts were too short. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> what, what was dad's first name? Phil. Phil, that's yeah. right. Yeah. And so Phil passed too young too. Yeah, he was 64, and I saw that happen, and I thought there's there's no way that I'm going to work for the next, you know, 20 years or 25 years, I guess, uh, and watch my dreams of doing all these other things that aren't tech die, mm -hmm. and so it, I just completely shifted gears. Like I I walked away from Seabright, which was you know, it was, a, it was making a, you know, two, $3 million a year cash business with basically no overhead to um, do something that was incredibly high risk with no guarantees. It brings into very sharp focus what is important. And what was important, I think I heard you say, was that Starler would be safe. Yep. Um, she... She has, has her own difficult uh, history, and uh, you know, we've, we've both worked as hard as we can to, to get to this point, and uh, just wanted to make sure that she never had to go, go backwards. And so, so tell us the rest of the story. You did manage to get a kidney. Yeah. And what happened with Cozy? So, <laughs> so tell, tell us about the kidney. When I found this out, uh, when I found out the news that I had to get a kidney transplant, there was a ton of testing to see if I could even do it. And uh, it turned out that, you know, after a lifetime of exercise and running and cycling and that kind of thing, um, that my, my body could take it, uh, could, could take the stress of a kidney transplant. And at that point, I told my executive team and I told my EA, uh, who at that point in time, like quite literally ran my life on in 15 minute increments. And I told her, you know, I found this thing out. I'm going to be out of the office quite a bit to deal with testing and all these other things. 
uh, and then I told some more of, uh, of my friend group a little wider out and about a dozen people stepped forward to give me a kidney. This is the part where I start choking up. <laughs> um, I got you, buddy. Yeah, I appreciate it. You always do. So what people don't realize is that uh, testing for, for something like donating a kidney is extremely stringent. And most oftentimes what happens is people are not eligible because going through the testing process, they find out things that are wrong with their body. Right. And so um, Starla was out because she has an autoimmune disorder. Uh, some of my best friends were out because of hypertension that they didn't know about, whatever. And my EA, uh, when I told her just on the spot, she just said, oh, where do I sign up? Like, how do I get tested? And this is somebody that I work with day in and day out. Uh, and you know, I couldn't accept the, the idea that she would be willing to do that. Um, but eventually she was like, no, dude, like, where do I, where do I go get tested? And so she got tested and it's a series of tests that takes weeks and weeks. And we got to the last stage where they're, um, I'm going to mess up my medical terminology. They're testing for six to their antibodies or antigens, mm -hmm. uh, it feels like ancient history and I've probably pushed it down a bit. <laughs> uh, one of those two things, antigens, I think. Um, and they basically put your blood together, put my blood with her blood and see if, if I attack it. Mm -hmm. uh, we both had the same blood type and all the other things were in line. And so we did that test and a couple of weeks went by and we hadn't heard anything. And I was at this point I had closed our series B round and I was kind of doing the dog and pony show for that. I was at home for some reason, and it was right before Christmas, later that later the same year that I met you. And she texted me. She said, hey, can I swing by your house? Uh, I have something that's perishable for you. She came by, and we hadn't heard any results from the test or anything like that. And she came by the house, and she had a bag a brown paper bag with green tissue paper in it and she said here you go and i took it and i said thanks and she said so are you, are you gonna open it and i so i yeah sure so i stick my hand down in the bag and i can feel like something hard and heavy and in my mm -hmm. head i'm thinking perishable like what mm -hmm. what is this and i pull it out and it's a can of organic kidney beans <laughs> and and i'm looking at it and i was like thanks that's a pretty fucked up Christmas gift. <laughs> and she kind of laughed. And then she said, I got the news. We're a match. And I'm so glad that you weren't in the office today because I could not have possibly kept it together. And, and then she said, you have to verbally say that you will accept my kidney like legally you have to do that and i was stunned this speechless and starla was standing there in our living room and i couldn't get the word out and i i, I finally was able to talk and i said I, I you can't do this like 
And she's like, dude, I'm in. You have to say, okay, though. And I just kept asking her, are you sure? Are you sure? And, uh, you know, finally I said, okay. And, you know, I, it, it's a touching thing to recall. And I think it's also very important to realize how absolutely fortunate I was to, you know, from the time we said go, I've got to get a kidney transplant to the time that we found out that, and her name is Patricia. Mm -hmm. I call her PJ from the time that we said, go, we've got to find a donor and also be on a waiting list to the time that we found out that she was a match. It only took three months. Right. Which is really rare. And we also matched uh, two, two of the antigens would be good. Uh, four is on the level of twins. And that's, that's where we were wow. on that match. So it was as good as it could possibly be. And it, it, uh, it only took three months. And you know, a lot of people will stay on those donation lists for, for years and uh, there's not a day that goes by. There's not a morning that I, I wake up where I don't think about the, the fact that I'm a lucky bastard. And deserving. <laughs> no, thanks. I know that's hard for you to hear. Um, but... Uh, I am so grateful to PJ. And I know that I'm far from alone in being grateful to her um, for having the courage and the big heart to help her virtual twin brother in the way that she did. I think one other thing that that's worth mentioning is that two weeks before the kidney transplant, that's when I told my team and my investors, that's when I felt like that was the appropriate time. Mm -hmm. And uh, I have since learned that for directly from other founders and CEOs that have carried things like this, there are far more people like me that have some horrible health thing that they're dealing with and for you know whatever reasons people all have different reasons to uh, to keep things from their their investors or their their team um, but it's really common and as i started to tell this story more widely and I, you know i shared some things on social media and other places people started reaching out to me because they felt like not alone like holy crap, there's somebody else who had to go through you know, something similar. And mm -hmm. for what it's worth, uh, I may regret this later, but if anybody does hear this and you're dealing with something like what I've been through, I'd be happy to talk to you. You know, just before we, we shifted to this, I made the point about you deserving it. 
Okay. And, and, you know, making a statement like that can feel, you know, kind of gratuitous and light and light, but this is what I'm talking about. This is the point, Gino. This is your pain. And yet your first impulse was to think of other people who are in pain. It's not to say that you didn't have your own fears and your own worry about Starler and your own maybe even lamentations against God. It's like, what the fuck? Why would you, you know, burden me with this? All of which you're allowed to feel. And yet, in a quiet moment, talking with a friend, this is what pops into your head. This is what I'm talking about. Do you know, I saw that from the minute we started talking in Italy, outside of Pisa, overlooking, you know, the Tuscan Hills. That's what all, that's what PJ sees. There's that part of you, that heart of you. And so I'm grateful that you made that offer because you're right. Whether it's, whether it's a physical ailment, whether it's a disease, whether it's life-threatening or not, we're all carrying something. We're all carrying the pain. Yep. You know, death was before you. It That's still it is was. every day. It still is every day. And it, it still brings sharp focus into how I want to spend my time every day. So you're not CEO of Cozy anymore, are you? No, I, I left at the very end of 2019. What happened to Cozy? We were acquired for the payment technology that we had built. And that uh, the, the plan was to integrate that into apartments.com, uh, a company called CoStar acquired us and apartments is one of their brands. Uh, from what I hear at the time we we're recording this, uh, that has been done and uh, Cozy will be sunsetted in the near future. You know, some of the team is staying on and other people are going to do other things. And I feel really good about where we landed the plane and it was certainly the right time. And uh, what's it been like for you? Because I do have a little insight, but what's it been like from 2019 until today is 2021, April? Yeah. So December 31st was my last day uh, of 2019. And heading into my first break since I was 15 years old, uh, I knew that I was having a double bypass uh, two weeks after I left CoStar. Uh, because Fabry disease never, never quit. And so on January 13th of 2020, I had uh, a double bypass that went as smoothly as it possibly could. Um, then as I started feeling human again, COVID hit mm. <laughs> and uh, we were still in, in Washington in the Portland, Oregon area. And, uh, this past summer, uh, we 
we're uh, fairly tired of the weather in the Northwest. And uh, you, you jokingly said in passing as we were either on a phone call or FaceTiming or texting or something, you can just come camp on my property. <laughs> I think I said something like, we're packing the van. I'll see you in three days. <laughs> and, uh, and we did, and we, we stayed next to a little shed there uh, at mm -hmm. your place in our van. You were kind enough to provide uh, an electrical outlet for us. <laughs> but no water. I didn't get you to let you shower or anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> and, uh, during the two weeks that we camped in our van, um, by your shed, we decided to sell our place and move to Colorado. And six weeks later, we moved to Colorado. And since then, you know, we've been, you know, as much uh, as, as one can during a pandemic, just doing a lot of exploring on, on bicycles and backpacking and uh, camping and that kind of thing. And uh, along the way, I've been advising a few CEOs uh, on you know, everything that is involved in, in building companies. And uh, I have also been um, in the past few months working with a, a brand new VC fund of all things. Um, I've, I've been supporting two women who have started a fund called Hannah Gray. And that's been super fun. Uh, a lot of the same kind of work that I do with with founders on my own. Um, and it looks like maybe there's a light at the end of the tunnel now uh, with, with the pandemic, although we're certainly not in a rush to, to change anything, but things are looking up and health is stable. Mm -hmm. And I wake up every day just stoked. You know, I know that the heart surgery was hard I can't even imagine what it was like to be in quarantine for heart surgery, only to go into quarantine for this damn pandemic. Yeah, we've been in quarantine since December of 2019. Right, right. But you're, but you're here, and there is light. Yeah. And and uh, you know, if I think back to to the commitment that you were sharing about wanting to take care make sure that Starla was okay and wanting to spend, not spend your remaining years, however long they are, um, living a life that wasn't, that isn't you. Anybody who sees you covered with mud knows, <laughs> as you once called me, that you're a dirt bag at heart. <laughs> And that you're just happiest out on a trail, with, especially with Starler, and maybe with two little dogs yapping at you, you know. Yeah, it sounds like a good day. Sounds like a good day. <laughs> sounds like a good life, you know. And uh, so, so maybe we know a little bit, a little bit of what you're like, who you are, with a little bit less of that pain. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And, and I think when I go back and look at that question, there's a part of me, that pain's never going away, right? You, 
when you have a, a terminal illness, I mean, we all have a terminal illness, but uh, we're on different you're, timelines. You're, yeah, and yours is a little bit more sharp yeah. than what we um, all commonly think of. You're more aware of it. I'm yeah. Sorry. yeah. Uh, but I've been able to take that pain and channel it in ways that maximize what I get out of every day. And it has also really amplified the, the desire and deep satisfaction that I get from helping other people. Mm. Mm. You know, um, I'm going to get all Buddhist on your head again. Uh, as I tend to, but one of the most important lessons I've ever internalized is that the way to deal with the pain is actually to focus on other people. And that's yeah. the compassion. You know, I'm with you. I always think of, in terms of, uh, of death, um, I always think of that Dylan Thomas poem, rage, rage against the dying of the light. Do not go gentle into that good night. And I'm with you about pushing back against the dying of the light. You know, I don't want to rage, but I don't want to go gentle into that yep. good night. They're going to have to grab it from me and take it from my hands, this life. Yep. And I see that in my friend. Um, but I also see the gentleness of uh, thinking about other people. And, uh, and my wish is that it, it provides for you the comfort that being there for other people has provided for me. You know, um, it doesn't make it fair because it's not fucking fair. But um, it's not about fair in that way. Things could be a lot worse. Things could be a lot worse. Yeah. Yeah. You're such a kind man and... Uh, what an incredible story. And I want to thank you for coming on the show. And thank you so much for having me on uh, five years ago when we met. I would have never imagined that we would be doing this. And this is the first time that I have spoken publicly since I left Cozy. And my frame of mind to help people uh, is a big driver for why I wanted to do this. So thanks so much. You're welcome. Be well. If you enjoyed this episode, go to reboot.io slash podcast to listen to all five seasons of our podcast conversations and leave us a review on iTunes. That's the best way for other people to find and enjoy the show just as you have done. And don't forget to join our mailing list at reboot.io slash sign up so you never miss an episode. 
Thank you for listening. Think about the last time you really felt heard. I mean, really heard. Being heard is one of the most validating experiences we can have as human beings. And it's a key part of practicing empathy. Any conversation that weaves its way out from good listening will take a different path than a transactional exchange of words. Listening may be the less traveled but sure path to the impact we'd like to have in the world. It can change the way we are with ourselves and with the important others in our lives and our work. Our kids, our teams, our investors, our partners, our friends. Listening supports better decision-making, smarter problem-solving, and more innovative solution creation. In our free self-guided email course, you'll explore the ways to improve your listening practices and better put to work this powerful yet undervalued tool. Learn more and sign up for Reboot's course on listening at reboot.io slash listening reboot. That's reboot.io slash listening reboot.